Grace, mercy, and peace to you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's easy to sympathize with the woman in our gospel lesson, isn't it? She comes to Jesus with what seems like a very legitimate request, after all. She's not looking for something for herself. Uh, She's not asking for the numbers to the winning lottery ticket or something like that. Uh, She's looking for help for her daughter. And specifically, she's looking uh, for salvation uh, from the devil and his demonic forces. And after all, isn't that just what Jesus came to do? We can easily see in her our own requests to God, or we plea to him for salvation and rescue for ourselves or for those we love. Lord, bring healing to my wife. Lord, bring healing to my child, to my husband, to my mom or dad. All the more so, uh, perhaps, as The woman calls out to Jesus and yet gets nothing. And she continues to call out to Jesus and earns a rebuke. Yet she continues to look to Jesus for help and in the end receives it. The key feature of this passage not to be missed on his terms and in his time. A Canaanite woman is actually another marvelous case study for what we were talking about just last week in regard to Job, uh, who also went through suffering he didn't understand with no apparent response from God. God's ultimate response uh, ended up being somewhat less than satisfactory. A a hard teaching of simply saying, guess what? You're not God. Uh, Let him do that. Today is a hard teaching as well. As Jesus kind of puts the woman in her place, even though uh, he does end up helping her, The teaching that we don't deserve God's help. We want to say, you're Jesus, you have to help. But he doesn't have to. He's God, and the rules are whatever he says they are. He is God, and he doesn't have to do anything. That's ultimately what makes it so amazing, actually. And when we drop our sense of entitlement to God's provision, when we drop our our sense of judgment over God, over what he should or should not do, we see that he helps us freely. And because he helps us not out of obligation, but out of love, we find that we're not only provided for, we are truly cared for. Uh, That uh, his gracious provision is not just to meet our needs, 
for a healing or help, but to meet our greatest need for a relationship uh, with a God who truly loves us. We see that in some powerful ways in this lesson, all the more so as we understand its place in the greater context. Uh, There's three things that uh, really jump out of the context to help shape and define what's going on here that I think we need to spend a little bit of time on, especially as this is a kind of difficult passage, to really get what it has to say to us. And the first of those things is to recognize that uh, this event takes place in the middle of a narrative sandwich. Uh, it's a classic narrative technique uh, in uh, the, uh, the, that tradition, the cultural tradition, uh, where uh, we see today's story bracketed by a kind of frame composed of the feeding of the 5,000 just before and the feeding of the 4,000 just afterwards. When you recognize this taking place in that context, what Jesus is saying about giving bread to his children is no mere metaphor. It's very applicable in the context. He's just given bread to 5,000 men plus women and children, and he's about to do the same thing for 4,000. So there's a clear connection uh, between these events. All the more so uh, because in the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, there are a considerable amount of leftovers, um, scraps not eaten by the children, just as the woman refers to in the, the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Just a chapter before, Jesus actually gave bread to his children, and there were, in fact, scraps left over, just as the woman asserts. Uh, So the the feeding of God's people and the overflowing abundance of God's provision uh, for his people is a consistent theme here that should shape how we're reading uh, this story. Uh, The second thing is that within this, this frame of the feeding of the thousands, There's not that much else going on, that this is a pretty clear focus. But there is one other key event that is intentionally paired with this. After the feeding of the 5,000, we see Jesus walking on the water, which clearly conveys his power, uh, but also I think is kind of just part of the, the travel narrative to describe how he's getting where he's going. You can't really skip that part anyway. Uh, that the two interactions that take place in this frame uh, are actually uh, the interaction with the Canaanite woman in our lesson and an interaction with the Pharisees just before. Uh, A notable contrast that's intentionally balanced. And Jesus, uh, at the beginning of our lesson, uh, we read, he withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon, Uh, because he had just severely insulted the Pharisees and needs to kind of lay low for a while uh, if he doesn't want to get killed before the proper time. And so he goes out uh, to Tyre and Sidon, where the Pharisees would never follow because it's a 
Gentile Canaanite region. And that's kind of oh, the intrinsic to Jesus's critique of the Pharisees that got them so mad in the first place. You see, the Pharisees uh, earlier, uh, uh, just before this, our gospel lesson, uh, came to Jesus and uh, attacked him for allowing his disciples to eat with unwashed hands. And, oh, that may seem like same thing your mom did to you when you were growing up. Uh, but the Pharisees were doing something different. Uh, the Pharisees always uh, washed their hands before eating, not for sanitary reasons, but for sanctimonious reasons. Uh, they were so concerned about ritual cleanliness that they insisted it was spiritually necessary to wash your hands before you ate, not to remove germs, but to remove any residue that may be there from having touched something that was previously touched by a Gentile or some other unclean thing. If you go to the marketplace and you pick up a melon to see if it's ripe, you know, no, put it back. Uh, But Earlier in the day, a Gentile had left their unclean fingerprints on that. Well, some of that may have come off on your hands, and then when you eat, you've got unclean hands, and you're eating unclean food, and you become unclean. That was how the Pharisees thought about it. And Jesus' response was to say, you guys, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean in the first place. Uh, for out of the, but it's what comes out of you. For out of the heart of man comes all sorts of wickedness, evil desires, and so on. So you guys are already unclean on the inside. All of us are. That the heart of man is wicked and corrupt. Uh, and it is out of the heart that come all these evil desires, evil thoughts, and evil actions. Mark goes on to, uh, in in the parallel account in Mark, he adds the parenthetical expression that in doing so, Jesus declared all foods clean, uh, highlighting that this is why we don't uh, keep kosher anymore as Christians. Um, But it also uh, applies to the uh, consistent move uh, that is made in Scripture from uh, ceremonial food laws uh, to human relationships. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 10, we have the famous episode of Peter on the rooftop, and he sees a vision of the sheet descending from heaven filled with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And uh, God says to him, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, being Peter, says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God's response is, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Uh, So another kind of food laws thing. But immediately after that, the messengers from Cornelius come and say, hey, Peter, will you come with us? And Peter enters the house of Cornelius the Gentile, which you are not supposed to do as a Jew, and says, who am I to... Call unclean what God has made clean. And Cornelius and his household are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As they understand 
uh, that uh, the distinctions between clean and unclean are all washed away by Jesus' blood, uh, who has made all people clean in his sight through faith in him. In the same way, uh, we have that move from food laws and, and the dismissal of ritual purity uh, to the acceptance of those deemed unclean and impure uh, by the Pharisees as the uh, faithless Pharisees are contrasted with the faithful Phoenician woman uh, who, though unclean by Pharisaical standards, uh, is blessed by Jesus on account of her faith, just as the Pharisees are condemned. And we see uh, here a, a, a food connection that continues to exist, but one that is reaching towards a, a greater application to human relationships. And that's seen uh, again in a third way as we look at the uh, uh, the actual feeding of the thousands miracles, uh, where initially the 5,000 are fed and 12 basketfuls are filled with the leftovers, the number of the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, In the feeding of the 4,000, the leftovers fill seven baskets, uh, the number of creation Uh, The seven days of creation, the the whole world. And you could even say 4,000 could correspond to the four points of the compass, the four winds as it was called in old days. That God's provision is not just for the 12 tribes of Israel, but for all of creation, uh, for all people of the four winds of the earth. Now, you could also argue that Matthew is not revelation and doesn't use numbers as symbolically. Uh, But whether it's an intentional uh, symbolism or a convenient symbolism for uh, uh, preaching purposes, uh, the point is is, uh, ready and faithful to make there as we see the uh, kingdom is opened to the Gentiles, just as we read in our epistle lesson. Uh, The the point of this, this feeding of the thousands, feeding of God's people sandwich, uh, is for us to uh, digest and and understand how God provides for his people and who God calls his people. And so when we come to our text, uh, we see uh, right away how that uh, issue is raised. Jesus uh, departs withdraws uh, to Tyre and Sidon, echoing uh, the uh, beginning of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Recall how uh, after John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus withdrew to a lonely place. After the Pharisees get mad and want to kill him, Jesus withdraws to a lonely place. Now, Tyre and Sidon are actually pretty heavily populated, Uh, But for Jewish purposes, it would have been a lonely place because Tyre and Sidon were an epicenter of paganism uh, throughout uh, the history of the Old Testament. Uh, These were godless people up in Tyre and Sidon who Jews would never associate with or have anything to do with. And it's emphasized in the text as it refers to the woman as a Canaanite woman. 
not just any woman up in Tyre and Sidon, a Tyre and Sidonian woman. She's a Canaanite. And you're at all familiar with the Old Testament. You know, Canaanite is not a positive description of somebody. But we immediately hear from the woman's mouth a, a, a shocking discontinuity as she uh, calls out to Jesus almost uh, with the words of the liturgy. Uh, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. She calls on Jesus as Lord, and she recognizes that he's more than just a miracle worker. She calls on him as the son of David. Uh, This is a very Jewish messianic concept. That she doesn't say, hey, you know, this guy, I've heard about him. He's got some sort of magical powers. Maybe he's one of the gods or something like that. No, she's not thinking of him in in theological terms of Canaanites. She recognizes him as the Jewish Messiah, the son of David. And it's all the more impressive, really, for that reason that she is looking to him for help. Because, again, she's not from that tradition. She's from the opposite one. That uh, David, for all he was honored uh, by the Jewish people, uh, all the the power and glory he brought to Israel was at the expense of the Canaanites. Uh, So the son of David is not a compliment in the Canaanite culture. You dirty son of David. Uh, That uh, she's using this in a positive sense. She's coming from a very faithful place you would never expect from a person like this. It's like going to a Muslim country and someone uh, and a lady in a burqa says, it's truly meet and right and salutary that we should at all times and then all, you're like, what? Where are you? you quoting the Lutheran liturgy at me. Uh, That's the last place I'd expect to find this. And so there's a contrast to being clearly set up. And there's also, again, that continuity uh, with uh, the events that have already taken place. Because what's the disciples' response? The same as when Jesus uh, confronts them with the, the people who are hungry. Their solution is, send them away. Send this woman away. And Jesus doesn't. He engages her. Now, his engagement with her is uh, not a positive one initially. It is not right uh, for the uh, children's bread to be thrown to the little dogs. But he engages with her. And the woman doesn't argue with him. The translation can sometimes make it sound like Jesus, the, the woman kind of uses this clever strategy to persuade Jesus or, or get him with this, aha, but the dogs eat the crumbs, so you got to help me. That's not what the woman is doing. Uh, the, the Greek phrase here that uh, is uh, used uh, occurs 40 times in the New Testament, Uh, It's never translated as a disagreement uh, or any kind of of contrast. Uh, uh, Probably shouldn't be even translated as a a but or a yet uh, here either, uh, as especially in the context 
Uh, she says, yes, Lord. And she calls, she agrees with him. And she goes on to accept the description as a, a, a little dog. Uh, and she calls him Lord. One doesn't disagree with one's Lord. Uh, so rather than saying, yes, but, it's probably better to hear her saying, yes, you're right. Yes, uh, Lord, uh, for the little dogs eat the little crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. And it's not necessary for the children's bread to be thrown uh, for, uh, to the dogs. It's not good for the children's bread to be thrown to the dogs because the little dogs are going to get their own in the proper way in the proper time. The little dogs get the little morsels. Jerome uh, would actually uh, put that in, I think, a, a kind of beautiful way as he commented on this passage, saying uh, uh, it is as though the, the woman's words were, uh, as a little puppy, I am incapable of taking whole food or sitting at the table with a father, but I will be content with the little crumbs. The, uh, there's an appropriate parallelism in this, that the word for dog here is not a great big sheep dog or something like that. It's a diminutive form of dog, a little dog. That's why Jerome uh, translates it puppy, uh, that this is a little pet dog. And in taking this description, the woman likewise refers to little crumbs. Uh, she uses the diminutive form of a, a morsel or a mouthful uh, to say that there's a little crumbs for the little dogs. And she recognizes even though that her place in the salvation story is not a primary one, that the Son of Man has been sent first to the lost sheep of Israel, she knows she has a place in God's plan. And whatever that place may be, God will provide what is appropriate for her according to his plan. And that, again, sets up the contrast compared to the Pharisees. Because as hard as it may sound for the uh, woman to accept that she, her problem is not a primary one uh, for Jesus, it was harder for the Pharisees to accept uh, that God would care at all for the Gentiles. And in fact, they didn't accept it. Where the woman faithfully accepts God's plan of salvation is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. The Pharisees cannot accept that God's plan includes the Gentiles at all, and they rebel against it. saying, no, the Israel is to be saved and everyone else is to be destroyed. It is our plan of salvation. We understand the plan of salvation, God, and you got to do it our way. And the Pharisees' insistence on their own understanding of God's plan ultimately led to their downfall and their loss of, uh, of their place. While uh, the woman's humble acceptance of God's plan, even though it wasn't necessarily favorable for her, led to her ultimate blessing. As we apply that to ourselves, 
When we come to the Lord with our own pleas for mercy and help, popular theology would tell us we have a right to expect from God, to stand on our rights, uh, to uh, insist that we're entitled to favorable treatment from God. But a right understanding of our relationship with God uh, leads us to expect that God will meet our needs, but in his own time and in his own way, uh, which is ultimately best for us. As Jesus himself taught us to pray, thy will be done. As he modeled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We come to the Lord for what he knows is best for us. And we will find that he will give it to us. In fact, he's already shown it uh, by giving us the best thing of all, though it is robed in a humble form that is difficult to accept. Again, not to dig too deep into the Greek, but the woman's response of even the dogs, the little dogs eat the little crumbs that fall from the master's table. Uh, The word Lord and master are the same in Greek. Uh, You could translate it as the little crumbs that fall from the Lord's table, a term which the early church frequently used uh, for the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And Christ indeed has given us little crumbs from the Lord's table, a little wafer of bread, a little sip of wine. And the world says, crumbs, why would you be content with that? And God's children say, this isn't enough for you. What is? What could be more precious? What could be more powerful than Jesus' own body and blood? As he meets our needs through these little crumbs, according to his plan, with what he knows is best for us. And if this isn't enough for you, nothing ever will be. I'm serious, nothing will. Because entitlement is never satisfied with anything less than making God your slave. If you come to God saying, well, it's great, thanks for your body and blood, but what I really need What you have to give me is this, that, and the other. You're never going to be satisfied because God is not your slave and never will be. But when we realize that what he gives us, even though it may seem like crumbs, is truly more than enough, we experience the greatest blessing. It may be that he also gives us earthly provisions and miraculous answers to prayer. It may not be. But when we look to what he has given as sufficient, as he has promised it is, 
uh, then we have true peace and contentment, no matter what else may go on. It's not easy. Uh, our, our sense of right, our, our sense of, uh, of what we need will always cry out to be satisfied. But God's word cries out as well, assuring us that he knows what is good for us. He knows what is best, and he will provide it. This passage teaches us again to trust God, to provide for us on his own terms. As it shows us that when we let Jesus be God, we find out that he's actually quite good at it. He can do it well. Because not only does he have all power, all wisdom, and all authority, as we talked about last week, he also loves us with every fiber of his being. So much that he would give his life for us. Uh, That he would uh, shed his blood uh, for us. To give us what we truly need most of all fellowship with him and eternal life forever. Those crumbs are in fact exactly what we need. The most precious gift that is in fact an overflowing abundance that will keep our hearts and minds steadfast in Christ and his grace until the day of his glorious return and the fulfillment of all his promises. In Jesus' name. Amen.